Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We know many of you listen to this show and others on WNPR because you rely on public radio for important news and analysis. Now imagine not having us on your radio dial. Now this is not a fundraising appeal, but rather an intro to an important project happening thousands of miles away in Senegal in West Africa. A Connecticut-based NGO is working to build a community radio station in a region of the country where villagers have little access to local news in their native languages. Now coming up, you'll hear from some Senegalese that I met during my visit to their country to report on the project for WNPR. Later, we'll also talk to a researcher in South Africa about a new discovery that will tell us more about our ancient ancestors. But first, back in Connecticut, do you have any idea what your state representative has accomplished this legislative session? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. We know the session officially ended on Wednesday without lawmakers agreeing on a new two-year budget. That vote's expected during a special session later this month. But we want to return to something we've covered on the show in the last few months, and that's the topic of a third Connecticut casino. Ken Goslin's back in studio with us to explain how this bill squeaked by. He's the real estate and financial services reporter for the Hartford Current. Ken, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Can you please explain to us what happened and what do we have now? Okay, so we, we do have a uh, um, legislation still needs to be signed by the governor that uh, provides for a third casino in uh, East Windsor, okay? But it was a very wild ride to get there. Um, it, it wasn't just straight on the, on the uh, expansion of casinos. What happened was in order to bring together support among legislators, other uh, gambling initiatives had to be brought in and were eventually approved. That included uh, expansion of our off-track betting parlors from 18 to 24. Also, putting in place um, a regulatory framework or the steps to get there for uh, sports betting um, online, which there is a very big push uh, nationwide among many states, uh, now Connecticut joining, uh, to make that legal here. Um, of course, you can do it online, but it is not those sites are not necessarily connected to places in the U.S. Now, this uh, whole process is not without controversy. Remind us again why uh, the tribes, the Mashantucket Pequots and the Mohegans, wanted to build a third casino. East Windsor was the site they selected. Why it's necessary? Well, they see it as a uh, defensive measure. Of course, they have their two very large casinos in in, uh, southeastern Connecticut, but just to the uh, north of Connecticut in Springfield, MGM is building a very large casino and entertainment complex, almost a billion dollars they are pouring into this, and it is well underway in construction right now. Uh, The tribes and some state lawmakers saw that as a threat to the, um, every month the the state gets a cut of the uh, slot revenue from Foxwoods and Mohegan Sun, and that has been eroding, okay, because there are more casinos in the Northeast. This would put another one. And so there was very real fear that that was going to further erode the money the state 
desperately needs to get uh, for its budget. Also, there was a concern about jobs that could be lost if there had to be downsizing in the industry in Connecticut. And the tribes promised or said that this new satellite casino would guarantee how many jobs? Well, the, there's a lot of numbers that have been thrown around, and uh, you know, nine thousand is one that is out there. It seems, you know. Um, it, brought through various studies and such, but uh, it, it has been a moving target over time. Now, we mentioned MGM has not been sitting quietly while this whole process has been going on, spending a lot of money and time lobbying against this idea of a third casino mm-hmm. in East Windsor, questioning the process, this idea of uh, two tribes able to open a casino on non-native land mm-hmm. off reservation. Explain uh, what their response is to all of this. Well, they already have a, uh, a lawsuit uh, that uh, challenged when the uh, the state first allowed the tribes just to kind of look for a location. Okay, this is a two-step process. Find a location, then get final approval, which they have have not received. Um, So they were, um, so they are challenging that. They're saying that other casino operators could, should be allowed into this process. And uh, they say, so the state gets the best deal it can, um, either through licensing fees or other fees. And uh, actually uh, the size of a casino that could be built. They were looking more at southwestern Connecticut. That's where Fairfield County. I wanted to bring into the conversation now Denise Terry. Uh, She's an East Windsor resident. Uh, She was on our show a few months ago, uh, a vocal opponent of this third casino. Denise, welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. What's your reaction to all of the last-minute dealings that went on within the Connecticut uh, General Assembly to um, permit this this uh, third casino in your hometown? Well, I'm certainly concerned about quite a few issues related to it. Uh, I'm certainly not a supporter of it coming to my town, and I'm definitely concerned that the General Assembly even voted down our representatives' um, request for the town to have to have a referendum. The, the residents of this town have not spoken out about whether they'd like this in our town or not. And I'm also concerned about the expansion of off-track betting and the potential for the sports betting being legalized uh, for a couple of reasons, one of which being that the the state is continuing to become increasingly dependent on its own residents um, spending money on gambling rather than on economic development or um, actual production or industry. Ken, I'll go back to you. Denise brings up the the point about um, not being able to have a referendum. How did that all pan out, and what does that mean exactly? Well, of course, the there was negotiations uh, between the tribes, their partnership MMCT, and the the town of East Windsor, and a development agreement was signed. the uh, The leaders of that community, as 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 Reverend um, uh, knows, uh, say their uh, referendum was not required under their charter for the uh, to sign such an agreement uh, because of where it was located. So, um, but there was a big push in town still to get a referendum, and there was a very large town meeting on that. And um, so there has been, the town is not fully behind this. Mm. Denise, tell us what you're hearing from your neighbors and your officials. Well, certainly the officials are over the moon about it. (laughs) Um, The residents, not so much. And in particular, there's been some misstatements about that the residents voted down the opportunity for a referendum to host the casino. That is a total fallacy. 
there was a town meeting in which a petition was uh, brought to ask for a referendum on regulating the casino and having the town regulate the casino above and beyond any regulations that the state might put on the casino. And the residents voted not to have a referendum about that. But there was never any vote of town residents about having a referendum about whether or not to host a casino in our town. Ken, how unusual is it that the town won't be able to hold a referendum on whether they want this casino in their town? Because there were other towns, I think Enfield and others, that were interested in possibly when the the bid process went out of what town wanted to apply to have this third casino. And those towns were were able to have some type of of voting in their town. Yeah, in particular, Windsor Locks was one of the finalists. And uh, they had pledged, even though their charter, they said, did not require a referendum, they wanted to have one just to make sure that the residents were four square behind what they were doing. So, yes, um, I guess it all would go to the interpretation of the charter. Mm. And uh, Denise, uh, tell me a little bit about um, your town government and uh, when's the next election? Do you feel like the citizens are going to respond to this idea of not being able to, to vote on this very important issue? Yes, I definitely think it's going to impact the next election cycle. Um, There's also been a push to change the type of town management, even before this issue, um, to move to a town manager rather than rather than a board of selectmen uh, form of government. So we'll have to see what happens at the next election, but I think it will impact it. This is where we live. Uh, today we're talking about uh, this legislation the General Assembly passed uh, in the last moments of the session allowing a third casino to be built in East Windsor. This was a proposal from the Mashantucket, Pequot, and Mohegan tribes. Um, Denise said that the officials, of course, are over the moon, but Ken, this is not a done deal. Tell us about the legal um, the legal challenges expected. Right. Right. Well, the, as, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, MGM has a, um, a lawsuit still pending. Um, there, it's on appeal right now. It was, di- it was dismissed in lower court, but now on appeal, uh, challenging this exclusivity that the, the tribes have been given by the state. Um, uh, the Shattuckoke uh, Tribal Nation, which is out in Kent, is also considering uh, 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 filing a lawsuit. Now, it's kind of unclear how this might unfold. Um, you know, I talked with some legal experts the other day, and they're saying, sure, the, the tribes can go forward and build, okay, unless they're the, a court orders an injunction that they cannot start construction, uh, So, that, which is, is a difficult thing to, to obtain. Um, so they could go forward on construction, and, um, and then the court cases would in, unfold. And those could take a while to to uh, to take place, um, and so we don't know what the outcome would be. But if it's against them, it could mean possibly that they couldn't run their casino. And I talked with the the chairman of the two tribes yesterday, and they they really didn't want to comment on what that final outcome might be. Uh, Denise, you mentioned that um, people in town are not happy. Any legal avenues that could be taken from from East Windsor residents? I'm not sure that there are any further actions that can be taken. Um, I think that's being explored by the Coalition Against the Expansion of Casino Gambling in Connecticut, but I'm I'm not sure at this point that anything more can be done Mm. legally by the residents. And when you were talking about concerns, just the idea of, you know, 
more gambling, uh, offsite betting that's being expanded in the state. Uh, there are questions about that uh, impact on, uh, say, older residents or people on fixed incomes that um, will maybe develop a gambling addiction. That's always a concern. Uh, but also just infrastructure in your town, worry about increase in traffic. Can you talk a little bit about um, those concerns? Well, I'm definitely concerned about the increase in traffic uh, based on the number of uh, vehicles and participants they're anticipating going to the casino. And it's it's been consistently pushed by the leaders of the town and, and by the leaders in the General Assembly that all of these people are going to come to the casino right off of exit. 45 or 44 on 91, and that's just that's just not accurate. Um, they're anticipating drawing from a 19-mile radius uh, participants to the casino, and uh, that would take them all the way through the town of East Windsor from neighboring towns. Uh, and they also have not dealt with the fact that literally about 100 yards down the road from where they're building the casino, they're, uh, they've also given uh, permission for a huge church to be built that could potentially bring in thousands of more cars a few times a week on that same street. Uh. And it's a two-lane road. I'm very concerned about that. I'm also concerned about uh, drunk driving and the increase of that, as are the residents of Enfield. Uh, Very concerned about uh, additional drivers on the road that are impaired, uh, especially late in the night. Uh, but also in the evenings if people have have been to the casino during the day. Uh, Michelle's calling. Uh, Michelle, we have a couple of minutes. What's your comment or question? Hello? Yes, go ahead, Michelle. We have a couple of minutes. What's your comment or question? Yes, I um, wanted to just put forth there how I'm the director of the Coalition Against Casino Expansion, and we are, we feel the vote to not, the reference, amendment that was put forth on Senate Bill 957 to give the residents of East Windsor a referendum in their town. The vote was 59 to 90. And we just feel it's very immoral, irresponsible, and unjust of our Connecticut legislators, 90 of them, to vote no, to not let the East Windsor residents have a vote in their town if they want this. We got 336 people on a petition that signed that they didn't want this in their town and several states in america have laws where towns need to have a referendum if a casino is going to be built there so i just wanted to state how uh, disappointed we are in um the legislators that voted no that would not let east windsor residents have a voice because you know before you put a casino in massachusetts they let the residents have a voice Mm -hmm. and we would ask um MMCT would pay for this referendum. So we're asking them to step up and to do what's right for the residents of East Windsor and to have a referendum. Well, thank you, Michelle, for your comments. Uh, Ken Goslin, this bill now goes to Governor Malloy. What's yes. going to happen? Well, he has uh, indicated support for the main bill. Okay, that would be for the third casino. But there's these two other bills connected to it that were kind of necessary to build the support in the legislature to, uh, legislature to get it passed. So I don't know exactly what he is going to do on those. He hasn't really said. Mm. Now, all of this fighting going on in Connecticut... MGM, they're still building that casino in Springfield. The whole reason this whole conversation started in Connecticut, 
Remind us the timeline. When's that going to open? Okay, they have been very firm on a fall of 2018, so fall of next year. Uh, the tribes were telling me yesterday that um, that it will take 18 to 24 months to construct in uh, East Windsor, um, and uh, they're going to tear down that building, the show, the old showcase um, uh, cinema, and build there. So, of course, uh, MGM will open long before the uh, East Windsor is ready. Ken Goslin, real estate and financial services reporter for the Hartford Current. We appreciate your time, and I have a film we're going to invite you back in a couple of months for an update. Okay, thanks for having me. <laughs> also, Denise Terry, she's an East Windsor resident, a vocal opponent of the casino. Denise, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, you've heard of our distant relatives, the Homo sapiens, but researchers have learned some interesting new information about distant cousins on our family tree. That's right after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Homo sapiens are distant relatives, but have you heard of Homo noledi? Deep in caves found in South Africa, researchers are making new discoveries about this distant human relative. To tell us more, John Hawks joins us by phone, a paleoanthropologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's calling us from South Africa. John, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell us about Homo noledi. Yeah, so uh, our work in South Africa is going on in a cave called the Rising Star Cave, and, uh, and it's very, very difficult to get into. Uh, the passages that our team passes through are only about seven and a half inches wide, and they have to do a climb down that. So we have a team of very skilled, all-women archaeologists who have, who have worked in the chamber and who have uncovered what is the largest assemblage of fossil hominins ever discovered in Africa. Mm. Uh, you're saying it's 17 inches across to get into these caves? Seven and a half inches across. <laughs> it, is, it is literally the length of a hot dog. <laughs> wow. So you mentioned that this is an all-women team. How do you find people that are brave enough, first of all, to, to go into these caves and then explain the significance of this discovery of the Homo noledi? Sure. Uh, originally, when we began this excavation in 2013, uh, our team leader, Lee Berger, put a post on Facebook and said, we need extraordinary people who can do this sort of work. And, uh, and we had no shortage of volunteers. Um, we, so you know, right now, there's just an incredible talent in archaeology, anthropology, um, you know, in, in a field that the younger people in our, in our field are now uh, 70, 80 percent women. So it's, it's really quite remarkable. How did you know? The Naledi discovery. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just curious how you knew to to uh, search in these caves known as the Rising Star in, in South Africa. Um, our team was working with explorers who were going into caves around this region, and um, and you know some of these young guys like to go into caves, and they they want to push the boundaries. They want to go into parts of caves where nobody's ever been before. And this was one of those. They were in this cave. We've known about the cave for a long time. Uh, cavers had been in it and, and worked in it before. But, but they found a passageway that no one had been through. And when you start to realize that this is a crack that you climb down for 40 feet and, and it is seven, eight inches wide, you know, you can see why nobody had ever tried it before. Right? <laughs> 
So you were telling us about uh, exactly about the Homo noledi and how it's related to our the Homo sapien. Yes. So Homo noledi is a very small brain species. Its brains are about a third the size of ours. It's the size of a small human. They stood between about four foot eight and five foot two. So you know you can imagine you know small people that you know in your life. They're that size. Um, they uh, they are very primitive in some respects. They have arms and, and hands that seem well-suited for climbing, but they also have some very detailed similarities with, with our species, with humans. Uh, they have hands that are well-suited for tool-making in addition to climbing. They have teeth that are small, like our teeth are. Uh, it, is, it is really a mixture of features. And give us an idea of when the Homo naledi were living. Was it the same time as the Homo sapiens? Yeah, so what we discovered very recently, uh, and this year's announcement, were that this species is living there between 230 and 330,000 years ago. That is the same time that our species, modern humans, is just beginning to emerge. Um, so, so they are there overlapping in time. We don't know if they met each other or whether they were separated in different geographic areas within Africa. But it's quite clear that this is a much more interesting time than we appreciate it. Modern humans are evolving rapidly in that time. They're becoming what we are as a species today. But at the same time, they're on this landscape with other species that have very primitive features, but also some startlingly human-like characteristics. Now, you mentioned that they were smaller, uh, their brains were smaller. How does this uh, second discovery um, emphasize uh, that, that they... That they um, what they were doing in terms of their dead and how they were, in a way, uh, similar to the Homo sapien. Yeah, when we found this incredible assemblage of bones in the first chamber, the Dinaletti chamber, you know, that's amazing enough. But our team very quickly identified a second chamber within the cave, the Lefetti chamber, that has additional individuals of, as we have studied over the last two years, Homo naledi. And, and that includes a really nice skeleton of an individual. We've mentioned mayo, which means gift in the language that's spoken around here. And, um, and it is a beautiful example of this species. Um, it looks like Homo naledi was using the deep parts of this cave to deposit its dead. And that's something that we have not seen before for any other species as primitive of, as this. Mm. Now, we're talking to you in the same week. Uh, there have been news about fossils found in Morocco. Um, some researchers say these could be the oldest Homo sapiens found to date. Uh, this is also debatable. Can you talk a little bit about that, that discovery and what it means? Because we were just talking about the Homo naledi um, dating back 250,000 years ago. These fossils in Morocco could be even older. Yeah, exactly. They, they are from a slightly earlier time period, about 300,000 years ago. And so they're, they're overlapping in time, these different forms. These Moroccan fossils share some features with humans. They're, they have bigger brains than the Leti by far. They're almost human-sized brains. But they also have a, a somewhat human-like face. And people who have studied them have pointed to that and said, well, these, these fossils from Morocco are probably connected to our species more closely. And, and that's significant because they're existing at a time when Technological changes seem to be taking place within Africa, and, and they show us what the hominids might have looked like. What's super interesting is that these technological changes are also happening with Homo naledi in South Africa. 
So it's like a, a crazy quilt of different hominins in this continent. Maybe they encountered each other, maybe they didn't, but all of them are exhibiting these super interesting behaviors. You know, there's something really special about the time that our species arose, and, and that's what we're now really working to discover. This discovery in Morocco would essentially push back the date of, of when our species emerged by another 100,000 years. What's your take? Do you agree with that? You know, it depends on how you define our species. I'll be honest, right? They are humans, right? They are, they are archaic humans in the same way that Neanderthals are archaic humans. And probably these skulls are closer to modern humans than Neanderthals are. So if you date our species to the division between these two different forms of, of humans, then they're probably within it. Uh, the key for me is we're seeing that there's a diversity in Africa at that time. And, and we have now two really well-dated fossil discoveries. What we need is more. Uh, I would not be surprised if, if as we explore more in different parts of Africa that are underexplored today, we will find other things. And, and, you know, it's exciting because we've had a hundred years of thinking that, you know, there's nothing out there to find that we haven't found already in this time period. And, you know, there's Neanderthals and there's modern humans, and who knows, you know, that's, that's sort of it. And in the last five or six years, we've discovered that actually life is much more diverse than we thought. And as our species is originating, there are other kinds of things there, and, and we need to, to find more to make sense of that. What's next for you? Uh, again, you're calling from, uh, calling from South Africa uh, near where the Rising Star Caves are, where your, your researchers are doing this work, you're doing this work. Um, what's next in terms of, of what you'll be looking at? Well, we're continuing to explore inside that cave, and we have uh, additional work planned for the rest of the year. We are also exploring other sites in this region, and we have already made additional fossil hominin discoveries. Now, this is an area where Hominins have lived for more than three million years, and we have very famous discoveries that are that are much that are way back in our ancestry. Um, so when we find something new, it's not at all sure, you know, exactly where it's going to fit. Um, that's sort of the exciting thing is that every cave holds something potentially new that we haven't seen, and and if we extend that across a whole continent, it is just amazing as a, as a time for discovery. You touched on this, uh, John, but again, you know, when people hear about these findings, some may question, you know, why is this relevant to contemporary life? What would you say to them? You know, for me, we're not curing any diseases. Uh, you know, we're not inventing new ways of, of you know, in, in, in reducing waste or anything like that. You know, our, our science isn't practical in that way. What we have to offer is that we're uncovering the common basis of our humanity. You know, the one thing that all of us share as humans throughout the world is this history. And it's a history that is largely unknown to us because it relies on explorers to find discoveries that date to these early times. You know, those things are the things that connect us. And here in South Africa especially, where you have so many different groups of people with such a history of strife and conflict, and, and in the last 15 years you've seen them coming together you know, that's, that's what these discoveries are doing. They are establishing a common basis for our humanity. And that's something that, you know, that, that I feel is a privilege as a scientist that we're able to do.
John Hawks, a paleoanthropologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He joined us today uh, from South Africa. John, thank you so much for explaining some of your research, and we'll be tweeting out some links to um, some articles uh, for people to learn more. Thank you so much, John. Absolutely. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, radio in Senegal. We'll bring you voices from the West African nation and introduce you to some people here at home working to bring community radio to rural villages in Senegal. That's after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Since he was first elected to Congress, Chris Murphy's profile has grown on the national stage. On the next Where We Live, Senator Murphy will be here to talk about politics in Washington and the issues he thinks are most important to Connecticut residents. Got a question for Chris Murphy? You can join the conversation. That's Monday. Two weeks ago, I was in the village of Gulumbu in eastern Senegal, recording as this group of women and children broke out in song. They were celebrating a project that will be built right where we were standing, atop a hill that overlooked the farming village. Now, by next summer, a community radio station will be built in that village of Gulumbu in a region of Senegal that doesn't have access to news and information happening around them, news in their own native languages. I traveled to Senegal in mid-May to report on the efforts there for WMPR, supported by a grant from the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation. To tell us more about that community radio project in Senegal, in studio with me now is Nicholas Weber. He's founder and president of La Corsa, also executive director of the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lucy. Um, many people may not know about La Corsa here in Connecticut. It's a Connecticut NGO. Tell us, how did you start working in Senegal? Well, first of all, it's very exciting for me to know that you were in Gulumbo, which in many ways feels like a metropolis compared to the villages where we have medical centers and build kindergartens and so on. It's a small town about half an hour from Tambacounda in eastern Senegal. Uh, I came to create Le Corsa uh, because I was working in Paris and there learned about a fantastic nonprofit organization that was providing medical help and educational support in Senegal. I went with its founder and discovered that with relatively little money, you could be fantastically effective in improving everyday life for people who were receptive to your help and eager for it, um, and so much was possible. And so I came back here and uh, created a nonprofit to support the French organization. French organization uh, is no longer functioning, but We've taken over the projects, and we're going great guns with medical centers, now the radio station, schools, um, and support for local hospitals and other projects. Now, you touched on uh, charitable work that uh, many uh, nonprofits and NGOs uh, help with. You mentioned uh, the health center that you have and Dakar and education in certain communities. But why community radio? Well, community radio is a project that really came our way. Uh, so many things in life are coincidence. I went to a school not far from here for high school. It's now called Loomis Chafee. Then it was Loomis. Um, I was looking at the alumni magazine. I discovered that uh, someone who had gone there, Topher, whom you have on, I believe, who'd gone there about 10 years after I had been there, perhaps 
he may be even younger than that, had something called the Foundation for West Africa and was working on community radio. And I thought, how extraordinary. Someone else who was at high school with me um, in the old days, before it was as integrated and progressive as it is today, um, was working in Africa. I wanted to meet him. I discovered that he was creating radio stations, and we found that we had a fantastic audience for community radio um, in the region of Golombo. You mentioned Topher. Topher is uh, on the line with us. He's president and founder of the Foundation for West Africa. Um, he's on. Uh, he's he's here with us from Rhode Island uh, via connection uh, from a studio there. Topher, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you, and hello, Nick. Now, uh, hey there, Topher Hamblet. Uh, again, you're part of the Foundation for West Africa. This is an organization you founded. Tell us about it. Yeah, the Foundation for West Africa. It comes out of my experience as a Peace Corps volunteer in Sierra Leone in the mid-1980s. Um, after I left Sierra Leone in 1987, a few years later, the country spiraled into an 11-year civil war. And I returned just after the war ended in 2002 and happened upon uh, the uh, early stages of a community radio sector growth. And uh, having lived there before and, and appreciating the power of the voice and the power of radio in a place where people are quite disconnected, I just jumped on board and decided to set up uh, an organization to help support the growth of community radio in Sierra Leone. And that grew into Liberia and now Senegal. Uh, tell us about uh, that system that's in place there in Sierra Leone and Liberia. How have you seen it grow and respond to things like the Ebola crisis? The, the, uh, in Sierra Leone, uh, there are lots of community radio stations, dozens of them. When, when we started out, uh, the first project that we helped out was the third community radio station in the country, and that was 2003. So since then... Uh, the the community radio sector has really flourished. There's also an organization sort of akin to national public radio called the Independent Radio Network with, with a hub um, in, in the capital, Freetown, and then now 37 member stations throughout the country. And they these stations uh, connect their uh, listeners, their communities, to what's going on in the capital and to each other. So during Ebola... Radio stations were lifesavers because people uh, in Sierra Leone, most are not literate, and the, the spoken word is the tradition. So people during Ebola needed to know what was going on, what to do, what not to do, how to recognize the signs of Ebola in your village, and, and how to take action. And without that information, I think Ebola would probably still be ravaging you know, the the uh, sub-region of Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. So radio stations, in effect, provided life-saving information to people who needed it. Now, when we talk about setting up community radio in places like uh, Sierra Leone and Liberia, how do you do that exactly? What's the cost associated, the steps? Uh, you know, here in this country, we take for granted. If we want to listen to radio, we just turn the dial. There it is. Sure. Ra uh, there are practitioners of radio self-starters in these countries who really know their stuff. They know what they're doing. We don't um, suggest where the stations should be. We don't make them up. Uh, we 
go over there and we listen closely to the needs that are articulated by these communities that want uh, an improved communication network. So we do site visits. I go over there every year, once or twice per year, uh, and, and really dive into communities and that, that are interested in, in either starting or upgrading their stations. Um, the cost can really vary as the, the size and the complexity of the stations vary. So one could start up a community radio station for $10,000 or $50,000. It really depends on how ambitious they want to be, how far their reach might be. Uh, with the advent of solar-powered radio, the cost, the initial costs are going up, but the long-term sustainability of these stations is probably mm-hmm. more secure. And that's what's happening in, in with this project in Senegal. It'll be a solar-powered radio station. Now, Nicholas Weber, again, in studio with us, uh, founder and president of LaCorsa, the organization that's partnered with the Foundation for West Africa. Uh, Nicholas, talk to us about um, the costs and how, again, you're going through this process, really bringing in local people to take ownership of this. It's, it's their community radio station, not some outside entity telling them how to do it. Lucy, it's absolutely their community radio station. I'd like to have you picture a meeting that took place at the same hotel you stayed at uh, in Tambacunda. Uh, You were there a few weeks ago. I was there in February when the four people from different villages who, in essence, are running and creating the radio station um, were all discussing their programs and their ideas. And... First of all, we have the um, simple aspect of education. One of the men involved in the radio station um, is head of a parents group um, at an institution called the Foyer des Jeunes Filles, which our organization um, helped create and now runs, which is a residential facility where about uh, 100 young women at the moment have a wonderful place to live while attending high school, uh, which gives them an option um, not to marry at the age of 12 and begin having children when they're 12 or 13, but instead to continue their education and have all sorts of possibilities for their own future. We think of reaching that audience and having some of these young women speak on radio um, to other women in all of the rural villages, uh, about their own advances. Also in the group of people um, running the station uh, in Colombo, we had um, a woman involved in the medical sector. I said that people need to be utterly free to discuss whatever they want. These can be touchy subjects. Genital mutilation is one of them. Um, Certainly, birth control is not an easy subject to discuss um, in the world that we're talking about, and I want people to feel complete freedom um, to speak on any matter that's of importance to the local people. Now, Nicholas, when I went to, to Senegal, I met a woman who both you and Topher know, Awa Diof. Uh, she leads the Community Radio Station Association in Senegal uh, that has more than 100 stations as members. Um, and she told me in her association that there's actually a network of women who are focusing on these questions of gender. Uh, community radio stations are uh, putting on programming that speaks to women interested in things like access to land, maternal and child health, human rights 
rights. And you just referenced uh, female genital mutilation, FGM. And she talked about a, a specific radio interview that was done that spoke about this, this uh, controversial subject. Let's hear it. In certain zones, for example, where people have come to on questions, for example, of circumcision, female genital mutilation, to abandon it because through a program, people had a chance to address questions. And we've seen, for example, girls who have lost their life as a result of circumcision. And she went on to say that community radio is the future for change in Senegal. Tell us a little bit, Nicholas, about um, the politics, the fact that it's a a Muslim-majority nation, polygamy is still practiced, a very male-dominated society. The community radio stations were really one of the few places that women can go for information about things that they may not be encouraged to do so by going to the local hospital or health center. That's completely true. But I would also say that the local hospitals and health centers uh, are increasingly open. We are building an expanded pediatric unit, an expanded maternity unit for Tambacunda Hospital, where the hospital director is a woman doctor, very progressive in her thinking. The minister of health in Senegal is a, a fabulous woman um, who has made great inroads um, in improving medical care um, for women and children specifically. But the needs are dire, Lucy. You have to understand that at Tambacunda Hospital, there are patients dying every day because they cannot afford the simplest medicines. The state will pay for care, but not medicine. That's where we kick in and do something. Um, And we do have a fund that pays for medicine for people. Um, On the issue of women's health. I'm a West Hartford boy who didn't know the word fistula until about eight years ago. Um, When I learned it, I realized that I knew women in my own world who suffered from it, but it's a major factor in Senegal. If you can imagine, um, about four years ago on my 65th birthday, um, I crossed the Gambia River in a dugout canoe to go to the opening of a small maternity unit in an entirely Muslim village where for about 8,000 euros, um, we had constructed a building, a little rural medical center where we'd also provided electricity and running water. And now there was a maternity unit named for my own wonderful mother and father who brought me up in the community where we're now sitting. How wonderful it is to be able to help Women giving birth when they suffer from fistula and from genital mutilation, which complicates childbirth. And today I was thinking about where I grew up. When I came here uh, to meet with you going on a solemn avenue, I remembered good doctors, piano lessons, good education, enough food, all the things that we take for granted, and sports. And This is what we want to bring to people in Senegal, and it's not so hard to do. And community radio is another means of informing people. And at the moment, it has a great role in helping us with the urgent crisis of migration.
And we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. I wanted to, this is where we live. Uh, we're talking with a Connecticut-based NGO, uh, La Corsa, Nicholas Weber, founder and president. Also, Topher Hamlet joining us from Rhode Island, president and founder of the Foundation for West Africa. These are two groups uh, helping to expand community radio in the West African nation of, of Senegal. I wanted to go back to Topher. I met um, someone that's with your organization, Lamine Saar, in Senegal. And when we talk about radio, and in this country, we focus so much on news and political analysis. Analysis, uh, very important these days. But even when we're talking with uh, locals in Senegal, Lamine told me about a conversation he had uh, in Miserat, the district uh, of Senegal, where the Tambacounda area is. Um, and he was saying when they were going out to the locals to tell them about community radio and this idea that it could come to Gulumbu, that even on a basic level, very practical level, they could see the need. Let's hear what he had to say. This gentleman ran to him and said, we've been looking for you for over a week. Uh, Can you help us? Because the most famous fisherman in this place, we haven't seen for a week. And we don't know what has happened to him. And we we have no way of advising people so that we can all look for it. Because uh, if we have to announce it on radio, we'll have to travel to some totally different region and have them announce it. And we don't know whether we'll get it here or not. That thing was, if we were able to announce it, all the fishermen would know about this guy and they would be able to go look out for him uh, in good time. Uh, It turns out the man had drowned. Uh, and for a week, nobody saw him. Nobody knew what had happened. So, so that that having a radio the, and the guy's reaction was: if we had a community radio, we would have announced it the first day that we didn't see him. That sort of stuff. Uh, Topher Hamlet, your reaction to Lamine's story again: this idea that you know community radio could fulfill that very basic need of just getting important information out as quickly as possible to a community very far away from Dakar, the capital. That is one of the most important functions of community radio in places like this. Uh, in, in Sierra Leone, after the war ended, there, there was very little in the way of formal communications networks, and people started using the few community radio stations that existed to put out a call to their relatives to come home because it's safe now and we need you back here to rebuild. And I think places like Tambacunda region in Senegal um, – most people are living life on foot. Most people are working in agriculture. And um, as I said, most people are not literate. So the, the, the power of the spoken word um, broadcast over a large area, um, it is, it's hard to overstate how important that is. So people just need information about simple things like um, market prices for their crops or um, healthcare information, basic healthcare information that they can um, receive via radio. The other thing, too, is that this is not top-down radio. It's not government radio. This is radio that ge- is generated within the community and, and, and broadcasts are done uh, by the people who live in that community. So voices are known and trusted, and that's really essential. Mm. We just have a couple more minutes. I wanted to go back to to Nick Weber. So when will this radio station open? And we should stress uh, that part of the initiative, and Topher just referenced this, and the power of spoken word, Senegal, very diverse, very lots of different ethnic groups. This this programming will be happening in their native languages, which is just as important. Uh, 
Lucy, it's wonderful to sit in your studio and hear Lamine's voice. And Lamine is a superb human being who understands both the essence of community radio and the essence of what we try to do with La Corsa, which is a recognition that we cannot change the whole world, but we can have a direct impact on individuals. He was talking about the missing fishermen. I thought of the little boy from the town of Misera, just where he was, um, whose life we essentially saved by getting him to Dakar for surgery for hydrocephalus. Um, I thought about the way that I've spoken with people who will be running the community radio station about how they will help with particular cases, cataract surgery, uh, which we've been able to provide as needed. A girl in a village who needs a wheelchair where you simply need to get a used wheelchair to her and her life is transformed. Community radio is a vehicle toward that. And Galumbu's opening when? Within the year. I, if I was vague about the date, it's because <laughs> we're not totally precise on when it will come together, but we've had a fantastically generous response in donations. Um, people whom I know by chance I have already given $10,000 toward the station, and we've gotten a grant, of course, from Topher's organization uh, and from the Albers Foundation, and we're moving ahead. The funding is there, and it should indeed be open within the year. And Lucy, I've long been an enthusiastic fan of your voice and hearing you on the radio. I'd like the other listeners to picture the way that you smile as a means of communication and the way that you encourage the people with whom you're speaking. The impact of a smile uh, is big, has a big role in radio, and I never realized that until right now sitting here. And I'm just hoping that we're going to get you to Gumbayel. If we need a translator, we'll find one. We have the issue of about 12 different languages, mm-hmm. and we're making a, a program so that not only Pungar and Wolof and French, but other languages uh, can also be spoken because otherwise people won't understand what's being said. Well, it was a fascinating trip, an important project, and we thank you so much, Nicholas Weber, again, a founder and president of La Corsa, also executive director of the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation, for coming in, telling us about this work thousands of miles away. Uh, we know the importance of radio, but to hear that it's happening in Senegal, uh, an area that needs uh, access to news, um, that's something that's close to our hearts. So we thank you so much, Nicholas. Profuse thanks. Thanks to you, Lucy. And Topher Hamblett, president and founder of the Foundation for West Africa. Topher, thank you for uh, coming on the show today, and we look forward to hearing about this village in Galumbu getting a community radio station in about a year. Thank you, Topher. Thank you, Lucy. You can read more about that trip to Senegal on our homepage, wmpr.org. Our show is produced today by Lydia Brown. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.